Welcome to Podcast Sans Frontieras, a Metal Gear Solid audio experience. Here, we infiltrate the narrative, interrogate the characters, extract the themes, via Fulton, of course, and finally face down the technological behemoth that is the Metal Gear franchise. The system is mine! Your guns and your weapons are no longer your own. Behold! I'm Manu, also known as Manuclear Bomb. Hi, I'm Brian, again. Today's episode is Green Collars, episode number seven on MGS4, Guns of the Patriots from 2008. Today, we will witness Liquid Ocelot's insurrection firsthand, as well as go over what exactly are the Patriots at this point in the Metal Gear timeline. But first, our spoiler warning for this and every episode. Everything is declassified. We know who Sigint becomes, we know who Meryl marries, we know the fate of Master Kazuhiro Miller. This is not a playthrough podcast. It's all on the table for discussion as we progress through the games. One brief announcement up top. This will probably be several weeks after I make the announcement, but we're going to launch some stretch goals on my Patreon, patreon.com slash manuclearbomb. Um, Some of them will be geared towards the Lord of the Rings podcast I'm doing, uh, but we figured, you know, hey, the Metal Gear podcast is the OG podcast, so um, a couple of bonuses we're hoping to float your way. Um, If we get up to 75 patrons at Manuclear Bomb's Patreon, I don't like to talk in third person, I'm sorry to say it like that, Um, we will do a special bonus episode covering The Matrix Resurrections due out in December. And if we get up to 100 patrons, I will be, or we, sorry, will be uh, doing a poll uh, for either John Carpenter or James Cameron movies or some other Kojima favorite um, and allow you guys to pick what movie you want to hear us dish on, both as a film and as a Metal Gear inspiration. And if you're interested about the Lord of the Rings stuff, um, if we hit 75 patrons, we're going to cover the bonus or sorry the extended edition scenes in fellowship of the ring as well as all the book only uh stuff like tom bombadil and all that fun stuff and if we hit a hundred we'll do it for all the movies going forward so i hear he's a merry fellow and his jacket is blue and his boots are yellow i also heard this (laughs) okay so enough of that a couple episodes back, we broke down the five-act structure of MGS4, highlighting the third act as the turning point traditionally. In Guns of the Patriots, that holds true as Liquid Ocelot completes his insurrection in one of the longer cutscenes in this game. Uh, for this podcast research, the scenes we are about to cover today ended up being one play session for me, and I didn't even get to play any of the actual game. But before we behold the guns of the Patriots, I think it's time we dive into what the Patriots are as of the events of this story. We want to lay down this stuff now so it'll be easier to discuss in upcoming episodes. After Big Boss's betrayal, Zero could no longer believe in something so uncertain as life. He lost his belief in everything. Nations, organizations, individuals. Zero was no longer willing to place his organization in the hands of the next generation. Instead, he set up a network of AIs, a decision-making system formed from all the information he had accumulated. He built four AIs, GW, TJ, AL, and TR, as sort of a digital Mount Rushmore, and one core artificial intelligence to unite them, John Doe. Back in our third episode, We went over the Sons of the Patriot system governing state militaries and PMCs. 
soldiers and guns, more or less. But SOP is just one part of the larger system, the system of patriot AIs that govern the United States and symbolically represents American hegemony. The patriots as a concept are the successor to the philosophers of MGS3. The initial patriot founding in the 70s by Zero was covered in our last episode, and the story of the patriots of the 70s and 80s is best left for our Peace Walker and Phantom Pain coverage. For our MGS4 analysis, we mostly need to know that the AIs took control in the 90s under the stewardship of Donald Anderson or SIGINT. The Patriots made their way into nearly all electronic systems by the turn of the century under the guise of preparing for Y2K. There are four core Patriot AIs known as AL, TR, TJ, and GW. GW should sound familiar from MGS2, which we'll get to in one second. The four AIs are the initials of the Mount Rushmore presidents, Lincoln, Teddy Roosevelt, Jefferson, and George Washington. These four AIs will also share names with the Peace Walker AIs piloting the unmanned vehicles you fight in that game, and their meme would be passed down to the system as it exists in 2014. Um, I guess also a good spot to note that uh, Mount Rushmore is on stolen land, and that it is supposed to be historically the six grandfathers as observed by the Lakota Sioux. Okay, that aside, the four core AIs are governed by a ruling AI known as JD for John Doe. JD is the supreme authority in the system and handles crisis management, such as when Emma Emmerich's worm cluster took GW offline during the Big Shell incident. JD's physical structures are housed in a satellite orbiting the U.S., stealthily floating amid space debris. John Doe, as a name, could represent the American ideal of the U.S. government being accountable to any no-name Joe voter, as we, the people, supposedly have power in this democracy, which, lol. More cynically, John Doe probably speaks to the fact that the Patriot system of control is shapeless and nameless, terms the AIs themselves use to describe their system. And do you remember what Big Boss, aka Naked Snake's name was in Snake Eater? John Doe too. Not two, but T-O-O. John Doe squared. (laughs) And remember how we mentioned last time that Zero wanted Big Boss to be at the center of his system? Hmm. Anyway, aside from JD, the AI of note is GW, which was stored inside Arsenal gear and was supposedly destroyed during the Big Shell incident. As Liquid Ocelot is about to tell us, that isn't quite true. Somehow, GW has returned. What actually happened is EE's worm cluster broke GW apart, and control of whatever systems it had fell to the remaining three Patriot AIs as well as JD. It's a good bet GW housed most of the military infrastructure for no other reason than George Washington was the most martial of the Mount Rushmore presidents. Liquid Ocelot was able to patch together GW's broken bits, which still existed within the system, and was able to use it as a haven to plot his insurrection and hack the system from within. Once he takes over SOP, aka his Guns of the Patriots plan, his last move will be to destroy JD in its orbit, allowing full control to fall to GW being housed in a new Arsenal Gear prototype called Outer Haven, which we'll see in the next act. Haven will have its own Mount Rushmore of snakes to surpass the Mount Rushmore Patriot AIs, perhaps. Mount no, no, Snakemore, as it was called. The Patriot AIs, as mentioned, stand in for American hegemony, and the brutality of the system speaks to American imperialism broadly. 
That cruelty is in part born from the events we'll see in the future Big Boss games, such as Dr. Strangelove not being able to fully complete an empathetic AI, and Skullface injecting his lust for revenge into the system. We'll touch on this more when we wrap up on themes in this chapter's final episode. It makes more sense when you just kind of lay it out, which is a thing I think is underrated. Like, people talk about these games, again, because I think we were talking about last episode about how... um, how the, the Kojima style works for this kind of game because you're supposed to get kind of rabbit hole, like everything, revelation upon revelation, like everything's just sort of compounding. But if you just sit back and, and write it out like this, it it still it makes sense. Like it's not that convoluted. I would say it makes more sense in Death Stranding's story. Like, I don't know. I, I, Kojima gets, these games get, uh, criticized for being like unwieldy and un- un- like the story is just being completely unreal like not uh, completely like just complete ball of yarn completely untenable and un- unknowable but i really don't think they're that like, the patriot stuff is fairly simple it's just that it's in game it's it it's uh coded and, and like just nonsense like it, it makes less sense than you think during the game because it's sort of deliberately confusing Right. Um, I think the combination of density and the way they kind of unspool all this information to you uh, may make it a little bit difficult. But even going back to our very, very first episode of this podcast, uh, we both argued that uh, Metal Gear isn't as much gobbledygook or as impenetrable as people say. Um, And part of the reason we're doing this podcast is with the benefit of hindsight and also the 23-ish years that I've spent, you know, kicking around Metal Gear Solid in my brain. Um, It isn't that hard to really lay out um, kind of the plot once you really just take some time and work with it. In the moment, it might be a lot. And there are points where they specifically withhold some of this information that I just dropped on you. Um, A lot of the information we're going to get about these AIs actually comes um, in the game's epilogue with uh, Big Boss and Zero um, in the graveyard. So... Um, like I always said that, you know, they're dense and they're meant to be, you know, you have to really peel apart the onion to really get it. But I don't think they're necessarily like so complex that they're so impenetrable or just nonsense gobbledygook. I think there's pr- a pretty straight through line that's just wrapped up in all of Kojima's flourishes and just doing whatever the hell he wants half the time. Yeah. Okay. With that out of the way, let's pick up from last episode. Snake had just defeated Raging Raven, and in its aftermath, Eva takes us into the sewer so we can rendezvous with the Picks, which in this game refers to a stealth boat of sorts. The word Picks refers to a box or receptacle, and in Christianity has has to do with the container used to carry the consecrated host, or Eucharist, to the sick for Holy Communion. That's a bunch of words I don't really comprehend. But in that, this Pix is carrying Big Boss's corpse, so in a way it's carrying the body of Christ, which is what I understand that holy bread to be, at least according to Dave Matthews Band's Christmas song. Anyway, Snake leads Eva through the sewers and arrives at the river, only to find a liquid ocelot waiting for them, enjoying a cigar like Big Boss before him. The lights are about to go up on Liquid's insurrection, but before we do that, let's dive into this game's antagonist in depth. Cigars, father's favorite. What do you say? Care for one last smoke? <laughs> you think you're a big boss now? <coughs> oh. Guilty as charged. 
that ends today. <laughs> ah, Liquid Ocelot. Generally liquid for short in this game. He's the game's big bad antagonist huh? and quite possibly the best part of the story itself. He could be an antagonist or protagonist in a way. We'll, we'll get to that in the discussion. Patrick Zimmerman gives a wonderfully unhinged but playful performance, giving us a liquid snake charade in the voice of Revolver Ocelot, something that applies to the in-game narrative as well. The name Liquid Ocelot is, of course, the combo of Liquid Snake and Revolver Ocelot, taking Solid Snake's two primary antagonists and mashing them together, which also echoes the naming convention of the B&B Corps, which are all also mashups of two villains. In a way, Liquid Ocelot is neither Liquid or Ocelot, but a proxy for both. His design is pretty standard throughout the game, a long coat and sunglasses. He doesn't have Revolver Ocelot's traditional trappings, namely the spurs and revolvers. The biggest visual reveal for Liquid comes in the final brawl with Snake atop Outer Haven. We were told Liquid Ocelot had Liquid's transplanted arm attached to his own severed limb, but when Ocelot goes topless, we see it's a prosthetic, not a transplant. That's the rub, of course. This entire Liquid Ocelot persona is a performance. A performance to surpass any of Ocelot's previous subterfuges. Ocelot did truly have Liquid's arm during the Manhattan incident in MGS2, and that arm did possess his body. However, Ocelot isn't dumb, and had the transplant replaced with the prosthetic afterwards. However, to continue executing his plot with Eva to overthrow the system and save Big Boss, Revolver Ocelot underwent hypnosis, psychotherapy, and nanomachine therapy to transform into Liquid. Remember how often I quote the Matrix Reloaded bit about how that's exactly the thinking of a machine? Well, Ugh. the Patriot AIs already had a solution forged and tested for defeating Liquid Snake. Solid Snake. Even if he was Old Snake now, with a little assist from the Patriots via Drebin and Rat Patrol, he surely could be pushed to defeat this new Liquid. Exactly how a machine would think. With the Patriots focused on Liquid... Ocelot was able to pull off his plan of bringing down the system from within with the help of Naomi Hunter and by banking on the will of Solid Snake. We can unpack the plot of this in later episodes, but this is once again Kojima turning Ocelot into the ultimate spy, going in, in the deepest cover and playing all sides against each other for his one true purpose. I want to say real quick, I think um, this is one of the things of this game that really works perfectly is that recontextualizing Ocelot to instead of just being kind of because Ocelot himself I think to this point is more kind of a mercenary I guess like mm -hmm, his mm -hmm. ultimate like he doesn't seem to have like an actual motivating factor in, and just re repainting it to be especially after three to be that he's just trying to he's literally trying to do what Big Boss was trying to do and that, that makes that work so much more like that being his ultimate motivating factor giving him a reason to be doing all this stuff, it really, it, it, it does, it fits really well. I think it works. Yeah, no, I totally agree. Um, and I like the observation you made that he's kind of just trying to do what Big Boss wanted in a way. Um, Zero with his Patriot system was able to kind of make Big Boss the face of the system that Big Boss never wanted to be. Um, and then, you know, enforce this, you know, vision of the boss's will that was in conflict with uh, Naked Snakes. Um, so Ocelot, in trying to free Big Boss from, you know, this Patriot control, is also in a way helping Big Boss's dream actually come true, which is an added layer there. And I think, like you said, he definitely comes off as a mercenary, especially in the Tinker incident in MGS2. 
Um, and it's more near the end of MGS2 is like, well, he's clearly motivated by something and has a plan. It's just really inscrutable the way the end of MGS2 is generally. Um, but I think they do do a nice job of kind of pulling it back around this time. Mm-hmm. In the cutscenes coming up, and especially in Act 4, Liquid Ocelot is magnitudes more melodramatic than Ocelot or Liquid Snake ever were before him. In fact, some of the sweeping monologues remind me a lot of Skullface monologues we will get in V. He's almost Jokerfied in this incarnation, an absolutely insane villain who is also several steps ahead of our protagonist at every turn. The last thing I'll add is we've talked about how MGS4 thematically is about modern online and gaming culture. Liquid Ocelot perhaps plays the role of our online avatars, personalities we adopt for digital spaces, often heightened in absurdity and cruelty compared to our real selves, often just for an extra laugh, if nothing else. We're all broadcasting certain images of ourselves, and how true it is to who we are or our goals is something to be unraveled. Anything else you want to get out here? Uh, I mean, just that Liquid is the most enjoyable character in this game, he's the best character in this game, and that... It's just like it's it really is like it's this is a one character not a a one character I still like I still like Snake but like I think one of the weaknesses of this game it's it's weird because I think he's a huge strength of this game but one of the weak things about this game is that that, like it's the only one where I think there's just like the one character that's really really so much better than everybody else Mm -hmm. I can't think of any other it'd be like. yeah, I really can't think of anybody else because, like, Peace Walker's got a lot of great characters. Yeah, MGS3 has a ton I of guess, great characters. I guess Skullface and V to an extent, but he's not, it's not... I don't think it's quite to that extent. Right, right, yeah. Um, no, I think that's a good point. It's um, And I, I, you know, to be honest, really love Old Snake and Snake in this game. Um, to use just a very rote analogy, it's almost very The Dark Knight, uh, mm-hmm. where Ocelot's very much Heath Ledger's Joker and the show stealer. Um, whereas, you know, Christian Bale's Batman is more of a rock, um, mm. not really blowing you away with any specific moment or performance. Um, cause I love David Hayter's performance as old snake, but it's not like he has a lot of, you know, really intense scenes with pathos. I think we actually get one in the, um, mission briefing between this and the next act when Otacon's just about to give up on everything. But for the most part, you know, snakes just kind of grunting along, asking his questions, you know, he's being the snake and the avatar for the player. Um, So that opportunity for having um, that great kind of character moments is lessened compared to Mm -hmm. someone like Mm -hmm. Asla, which is also what we saw with uh, Big Boss and The Boss in MGS3. Naked Snake's a great character, but The Boss is, you know, the real centerpiece of that narrative. But but then but you know then there's Volgan and there's there's Ocelot and Eva and mm-hmm. everybody else is fun. Granin, the like, Cobra unit a- as a collective are really good. Yeah. Um, so yeah, no, I think the problem is as we talked about, Naomi isn't that great in this uh, game. Uh, Meryl's fine, but then she gets bogged down with the Johnny Sasaki stuff, which kind of you know lessens her later. Um, Hal also like pretty great, but then like he gets, you know, bogged down in some of the Naomi stuff. Uh, so it's just uh, Snake's the only one who kind of avoids falling into that. And the only real new character in this game is Drebin. And we've, you know, talked at length about him. Mm-hmm. Whereas with MGS3, everyone was kind of new. So there was a certain freshness to everyone as well. Okay, I've stalled long enough. Liquid Ocelot was waiting for Snake and Eva, among others, because a good showman deserves an audience. 
Snake keeps his gun pointed at Liquid, but Ocelot tells him to put it away, as if he isn't prepared for this. Which reminds me of 006 revealing himself to 007 in the statue (laughs) park in Goldeneye. Put the gun away, James. It's insulting to think I haven't anticipated your every move. Frogs appear to surround Eva and Snake, and Bamp reveals himself too, with Naomi hanging off of him. Snake senses betrayal, but we already discussed how this is a weird long game Naomi is playing. Liquid goes on to explain his plan, GW, and how he will take control of the system, stuff we already went over with the Patriot AIs. The most notable part of this is just Liquid Ocelot owning Old Snake in hand-to-hand combat. He throws his lit cigar at the Solid Eye and uses that moment to disarm Snake, taking both his guns and sticking a knife deep into Snake's shoulder, so deep he can't seem to pull it out. It's an utter de-pantsing for Snake, something about male power fannies and just getting so thoroughly beaten. Uh, I don't know. Nice try. But when it comes to CQC, I've got the upper hand. Eva, still severely injured, makes one last plea to Adam, the ocelot under the liquid, by rolling him an apple, a symbol of original sin, but also calling back to their relationship with the snake and original mission. While the overriding conspiracy was designed and executed by Eva and Ocelot, the plan to go undercover as liquid seems to have been Ocelot's idea alone, so he rejects Eva's olive branch fruit by crushing it. With Eva and Snake defanged and rendered bystanders, Ocelot leaves them to raise the curtain on his insurrection. He joins Naomi and Vamp and a battalion of frogs on a speedboat and circles out to the middle of the river, where he ends up surrounded by American forces led by Merrill and Rat Patrol. And make no mistake, these are American forces with U.S. equipment and stars and stripes all over the place. Merrill picks up Snake and Eva from the docks and orders Liquid to surrender. One touch I love here is that the troops hit Liquid's ship with spotlights, which makes Vamp hiss in classic vampire fashion. But when Liquid doesn't comply, Merrill tells her troops to open fire, and what happens next is... nothing. Absolutely nothing. The U.S. soldiers seem unable to use any of their guns, all the boats and spotlights have been powered down, and Liquid has assumed control of the full military apparatus. Liquid makes finger guns at one of the choppers, and all of a sudden it starts spinning out of control. He makes another finger gun bang at his own head, and all the troops start freaking out like they did in the Mideast and South America. The carnage really starts now, as the frogs open fire on all the defenseless troops and equipment, all the while Liquid hamming it up by miming the machine gun fire from atop his ship. Pretty much every character is hit by a bullet during this, almost all of the US boats on the water are left in smoky ruin, and well, it seems Liquid has achieved his Guns of the Patriots goal. Liquid and company make their exit, but not before returning the body of Big Boss to Snake and Eva, since it's no longer needed for their plans. The Biomort is thrown into a fire on Merrill's ship, and Eva basically burns alive in an attempt to save the corpse. A corpse, we'll later find out, is Solidus, not Big Boss. Snake tries to pull her back, but Liquid fires a single explosive bullet that lights everyone up, burning half of Snake's face off. Amid all this madness, though, Snake gives out a guttural call.
With that, the Mark II goes into stealth mode and hops onto Liquid's boat to help Snake and Hal track their next move. More on that later. Snake's burned face here gives me another A Song of Ice and Fire Game of Thrones analogy to make, one to Sandor Clegane, aka the Hound. The Hound had his face burned at a young age, but his resulting disillusionment with the system, aka Westerosi chivalry, is a defining trait of his character, one he works for to start with, but ultimately breaks away from, hopefully finding peace in the process. Both Big Boss and Solid Snake have similar stories, though Solid Snake is the only one to find peace in the end. And while I didn't dislike Game of Thrones Season 8 like everyone else, I really did want Sansa Stark to tell Sandor Clegane that you're no dog, you're a wolf, a la Sniper Wolf's death in MGS1. It's not a good season of television, is the thing. (laughs) If this cutscene wasn't long enough for you, well, there's room for a little more. We catch up a little bit later with everyone trying to pull themselves up from the massacre. Johnny saved Meryl from drowning, performing CPR, and in doing so, finally reveals himself to be extremely hot and looking like a really, really young solid snake. Meryl comes to and lays a big kiss on Akiba, and, well, we know where this is going. On the other hand, Snake was unable to save Eva. She still has a few breaths left in her, and waxes poetic about how so long there is light, there is shadow, doing her best Lady Melisandre impersonation. We'll play a bit of that when we exit this section, but there's definitely a parallel here with Johnny and Meryl. You, the player, do not get partnered with Meryl the love interest from the first game, and instead you have weird incestuous mommy romance vibes with Eva. And whereas Johnny saves Meryl and begins a romance, Snake watches Eva die as she tells him his light must be extinguished. Bleak stuff. Yeah, it's great. I'd say this game goes for the heavy-handed a lot. I don't know if you've heard that before. No, never. Um, But I think think this one, just the moment, mostly works. Like, you know, it's the only moment of of all the Johnny... Meryl stuff that isn't verging on cringe because it's mostly just like a meat cube almost. I don't know. It's it gets pretty bad. I really dislike the Act Five part with them, but I think it's yeah. more just because it, it takes so much time. It's like I I don't need to come back to these two every thirty fucking seconds. But um, yeah, I don't know. Eva, I think Eva is dealt with fairly well, and yeah, there is that little weird. I mean, he looks literally exactly the same as Big Boss, so I think there's there's a little weirdness in there, mm-hmm. but that's fine. As people who've all watched Dune, that's okay. You could have a little weirdness in there. Uh, I, I think Eva deserves this kind of send off. Um, mm-hmm. I think, you know, if you want to complain about this scene, is this the Johnny Merrill stuff does take a while. And there's even some of that Ed and Jonathan stuff, which who is cares? one of those things where, like, <laughs> I don't care. I mean, I'm glad they're trying to give them, but this is not the time for it. Um, ideally, you would have set up their characters earlier so that when they get shot and they don't die, but they're basically out of commission for the rest of the game, you could, you know, do something a little more meaningful. But since you don't care about them up until this point, their little friendship doesn't really have any payoff. No, none. One bit of info we will find out later is that Eva may have actually perished from a new version of Fox Die because the Patriots know only one way to deal with threats. We'll talk about that in a future episode. Drebin shows up to pull Snake out for now, and that closes Act 3 of MGS4. You and the beasts are no different. Scorched shadows born to the world. When a beast steps into the light, uh, uh, 
unless the light is put out, the shadow cannot be erased. So long as there is light, there is shadow. To return everything to normal, the light must be extinguished. And when that happens, you will be too... We'll go into the mission briefing following this act so we can square up on Act 4 next time out. Sunny sings us into the act with the names of Japanese train stations, which if you recall is one of the whacked out worm-infected kernel AI calls from MGS2. We start by getting some surveillance footage from the Mark II, which stowed away on Liquid's boat in Eastern Europe. Liquid, Vamp, and Co. are talking about Rex as being the next part of their plan, and our heroes are left to suss out what that all means as the Mark II was discovered shortly thereafter. Don't worry, Otacon is putting finishing touches on the Mark III for the last two acts of the game. Campbell calls in to let us know that war has stopped all across the world, which of course, under American hegemony, is the worst possible thing. They literally say the folks in D.C. must be shitting themselves as the entire order of things was predicated on the war economy. The only thing Ocelot didn't control yet was the nuclear arsenal, as control of that supreme power still rested with J.D. But Ocelot spoke of needing to nuke J.D. out of the sky, and wheels start turning in everyone's head. It turns out there is a naked gun and a naked nuke still out there, one that predates the system and hadn't yet been retired. It was part of a Black Ops top-secret mission back in 2005 off a remote island in Alaska in the Fox Archipelago. Sound familiar? Yeah. Liquid aims to take control of the railgun belonging to Rex, which has been untouched since the Shadow Moses incident nine years ago. Rex's railgun should be able to blow JD out of the Earth's orbit, and then Liquid will truly control the entire planet. Otacon is going full Doomer at this point, thinking they have no shot at this. But here, the will of Solid Snake shows itself again. It's not about winning or losing, he says. It's a no chance and no choice moment. They must keep fighting even if there's only a fool's hope. Snake may be a shadow that no light can shine on, but he will still do everything in his power to save the world. David and Hal started this after all, and these words are enough to rouse Raiden from his rest. He's being treated for his injuries from South America now, and both Otacon and Sonny say he's not ready to resume battle. But Snake and Raiden have their own thing, and Raiden will fight with Snake to whatever end. Mei Ling, voiced by Kim Mei Guest, chooses this time to make her appearance in this game, calling from the USS Missouri, a World War II warship reserved for training exercises. It predates the system significantly, and is one of, if not the only warship available to the U.S. Mei Ling is only there because she had been hung out to dry following the Shadow Moses incident. Oh, and like Naomi, she is no longer sporting an accent and actually speaks like someone born and raised around Berkeley. 
Mei Ling confirms they were able to track Liquid to Shadow Moses and says they'll be able to offer some naval support once the Missouri gets there. She does mention that parts of the island are slipping back into the ocean to give us a nod towards climate change, which can't be extricated from a world constantly at war. It's good that Mei Ling doesn't speak like a James, like a 1965 era fucking like horrible stereotype, I guess. I don't know. Yeah, correct. Uh, this briefing is probably the most important and interesting, yeah. but it, yeah, it's, it is, it is another just like people talking. It's nice to see Mei Ling though, I guess. Yeah, because um, they, they've uh, referred to Mei Ling a couple times in this game mm-hmm. and even back in MGS2, but she was not in that game, at least not in the canonical telling of it. And uh, yeah, so like the problem with the Act 3 briefing is that there's so much fucking Naomi Hal stuff um, yeah. and Naomi Sunny stuff. Um, this one is a far more to the point. Like the mission briefing starts with them trying to figure out what Ocelot's doing, and it basically ends when uh, May... Uh, Mei Ling confirms that what Ocelot's doing. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a lot less fat on this one. And I also think I was mentioning earlier that uh, David Hayter actually has some of his more meaty stuff here, especially when he's telling Ocelot not to give up and that they still have a job to do. Which I guess they do. <laughs> <laughs> they do. They is the operative thing there. Like, Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Snake. <laughs> no. We will stop there for today because we all know where we're going next. I think you know. A long-forgotten base in U.S. territory outside the Patriots' control. The place where Liquid made his debut. His monument. Off the Alaskan coast, in the Fox Archipelago. Shadow Moses Island. So that's mission complete for this episode. Our frequency is podcastsoundsfrontiers at gmail.com and at podsandsfront on Twitter and Instagram. You can support Podcast Sounds Frontieris and all my other projects at patreon.com slash manuclearbomb, which is me. I've been Manu. I'm Brian. Nano's got me where I am today. Thumbs up. Shout out to our sound editor, Stephen Boyd, aka DJ Empirical on Twitter. Please remember to like, review, and subscribe on your favorite podcast application. So until next time, here's to you.